We've talked at different times about the vastness of the Buddha's vision. Vastness in terms of the cycles of samsara, the wandering through lifetimes. The vastness in terms of the different realms, the different planes of existence and of world systems. Sort of the immeasurable lengths of time in which all of this happens. Although we may have (coughs) a great faith or confidence in the teachings of the Buddha, for most of us, <coughs> excuse me, this sense of the immensity of the world, of the worlds, is beyond our direct experience. We may listen about it and believe it or not believe it, and perhaps get inspired by it or not. But for most of us, we haven't seen directly these 31 planes of existence and the 10,000 world systems. There's another way of understanding and of the vastness of the Dharma vision which we can experience, which we have been experiencing very directly. And that is the opening to the experience of consciousness itself. Taking a very very direct and careful look at the nature of the mind, at the nature of consciousness. In this sense, our practice actually becomes a journey into this inner vastness, into the immensity of the mind. What exactly is consciousness? How does it create all the various worlds that we live in? The worlds of the physical and the emotional and the intellectual and the spiritual. They're all arising out of consciousness, out of the power of consciousness, out of the power of the mind. It's the mind which creates the whole of samsara. We can experience very directly for ourselves the nature of this mind. That's really what we're doing hour after hour. It's looking at the mind and how it is creating the world. The Buddha said that this mind or consciousness can be our worst enemy or most beneficent friend. No other thing do I know, O monks, that brings so much suffering 
as an undeveloped and uncultivated mind. An undeveloped and uncultivated mind brings suffering indeed. No other thing do I know, O monks, that brings so much happiness as a developed and cultivated mind. A developed and cultivated mind brings happiness indeed. We've had some very clear understandings of this, you know, just as we watch our own minds. We see it in the world very clearly. And we see the suffering involved in mental illness. When there is so much an overwhelming identification with certain thoughts or emotions or feelings in which there's no space at all, no spaciousness at all. And where the mind gets caught up or can get caught up in often terrifying images and pictures and feelings and emotions, mind that is untrained, uncultivated, can create so much powerful suffering in people's lives. It's much, much greater than the suffering of the body. Buddha said that the suffering of the mind far exceeds the suffering of the body. We all know what the suffering of the body is like. But when our mind is caught in this very tight space, inside. There's no place of refuge. There's no place of ease. We can see the power of the mind, of the uncultivated and untrained mind, in our more ordinary deluded states, not even taken to the extreme of real mental illness, but just our ordinary everyday delusions. Now, those times when the mind gets caught in obsessive thought loops. Now, how many times have you sat and just watched the mind go round and around and around something? Caught, not able to let go of it. When we're caught repeatedly in emotions, emotions of suffering that overwhelm us. And it's the mind, it's the untrained and uncultivated mind which is creating the suffering. We see it in the addiction, the various addictions we have to certain actions. That's just so interesting to watch, that process, that the tremendously strong force in the mind. Do this, do this, do this, do this, again and again and again. Even when we know that it's not going to really do much for us, and it may even be quite harmful, but when the power of addiction is strong, very hard to unhook. This is the force of the mind, the power of the mind working.
just in the ordinary circumstances of our lives and the way we relate to people. When we don't understand how to let go of anger or resentment or jealousy or hatred, it's like little bits of temporary insanity. You know, because here there are suffering states of mind which we hold on to. It's as if we're beating ourselves. If we did to our bodies what we actually do to ourselves in the mind, in our mind, we'd probably be locked up (laughs) for our own protection. (laughs) On retreat, I mean, we see it a lot just in all the different ways that we observe the things arising in the mind, all the the feelings and emotions that we get caught in, that we can't let go of. We see it very clearly, this power of the mind, the power of consciousness, in the great phenomena of yogi mind, where the mind just gets caught. I don't remember what I mentioned to you uh, earlier in the course, the the fan wars in Burma. You know, there we, we were sitting in Burma and two yogis, because here it's the window wars. <laughs> there, there it's the fan wars because it's very hot. It's really hot. Some yogis like the fans on, some yogis like the fans off. Two yogis came to blows. Really, actual, actually started fighting. <laughs> All in the development of mindfulness. <laughs> I mean, it starts to loom so big, (laughs) you know, whether the fans are on or off. Somebody told me a story of a yogi on retreat. It was out in Oregon, a small retreat. And it was out in the country, but there were, you know, a few planes flying overhead during the day. And the yogi got so obsessed with the noise of these planes that they wrote to the manager of the course to please contact the airline to see if they would change the flight plan. (laughs) (laughs) What's so interesting to me is how absolutely prevalent is this phenomenon of yogi mind. I mean, we all have it. It just seems to happen, you know, as we're sitting and looking so carefully at one time or another, the mind just locking into something and losing all perspective. It happens in some very little things. It's also what happens out in the world, often with consequences of great suffering, where the mind gets locked in, gets identified, doesn't know how to let go. The mind is also powerful in positive ways. 
It's not only powerful in ways that create suffering. Consciousness or the nature of mind is tremendously powerful in the creation of beauty. We're in the development of the intellect in art, in science, in the development of compassion and of kindness. Now, it's the nature of consciousness, the nature of the mind, which allows for the arising of Buddhahood, the awakening of Buddhahood, of the compassionate action of a Buddha. All of this comes from the mind as well. It's this amazing wellspring of creativity. And that becomes increasingly accessible to us as we begin to purify this mind, to create some spaciousness, to create some stillness. There are so many stories of women and of men who are truly heroic in different circumstances in their lives. Where does this come from? Where does this really noble quality of being come from? It's born from the mind. It's born from consciousness. As we sit, as we meditate and look and observe at the nature of this mind and everything it creates, both the potential for suffering that it can create and the potential for beauty, for real nobility. We increasingly appreciate the meaning of the Buddha's words in the Dhammapada when he said, the mind is the forerunner of all things. It all comes from consciousness. On one side of things, as we begin to observe the changing nature of phenomena, we really see for ourselves directly the impermanent nature of all, of all experience. On one side, we see the unsatisfying quality of that. We see that experience is essentially unreliable because it's not lasting. There's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing there to provide a lasting satisfaction, a lasting completion. Looked at from the other side, it's precisely because things are changing, it's precisely because of impermanence that we have the potential to become Buddha. If things weren't changing, that wouldn't be such good news either. (laughs) It's the fact of change itself which allows for the cultivation, for the perfection of consciousness. It becomes deeply empowering to realize this, to really see for ourselves that consciousness is not static, it's not fixed, but that consciousness itself, the mind itself, is a process. 
And our work then is to understand how it is that this mind works. How is it that it's all happening? How is the process unfolding? Because when we understand carefully and accurately exactly what leads to what, what conditions bring what results, it's not arbitrary. It's not that we're living in this chaotic world where nothing makes sense, although it can often seem like that. The beauty of the Dhamma and one of the meanings of the word Dhamma is, is law, the lawfulness of things. So in our practice of the Dhamma, we're practicing seeing clearly and understanding how things are happening. These conditions lead to suffering. These conditions lead to happiness. These conditions lead to freedom, lead to peace. Then we can begin to very genuinely fashion our lives. We can actually come to places of real happiness, of real peace, when we understand the conditions which lead to that. So we take a look at the nature of the mind itself. Take a look at this process of consciousness. What is it? I mean, it's it's an amazing thing to look directly at the mind. We see that consciousness or the mind is that universal power of knowing. It's the power of knowing. What's so interesting to me in the practice is how it looks at often what is very obvious, but which in our lives we often have not looked at. And you go up to somebody on the street and you say, yeah, the mind knows things. <laughs> it doesn't sound so profound. <laughs> you know, everybody knows that the mind knows things. <laughs> but to really see, to really observe for ourselves exactly what this power of knowing is, Consciousness is that which knows. So there's this power in the universe, there's this faculty in the universe of knowing. It doesn't have to be there. <laughs> knowing what? What is it that consciousness knows? can see it in many different ways. Very simply, just the knowing of the different sense objects. The knowing of a sight, the knowing of a sound, knowing of a movement, of a sensation, of a thought.
the meditation practice enables us to experience directly and to see clearly and very perceptively and very accurately and intimately from the inside exactly what this knowing is. Can we listen to a sound? Just knowing the sound. What is it that knows? Knowing memories, whether it's memories of this life, memories of other lives. It's consciousness which has the power or has the capacity to know other realms of existence, you know, and other worlds. Of them. How did the Buddha know about all this? Through the power of consciousness, through the power of his mind. There's a knowing of all of the different factors or qualities which arise together with consciousness. All those qualities which we've talked about in various ways, the quality of greed, of hatred, of delusion, of love, of compassion, of mindfulness, of concentration. All of these are mental factors or mental qualities which arise together with a moment of consciousness. The consciousness itself, the knowing itself, is pure. It's simply knowing the object. So there is an inherent and an intrinsic purity to the mind. Consciousness knows itself. This knowing can know itself and know itself as a process arising and passing away. Consciousness is this miraculous quality that is happening in every moment and which normally we take completely for granted. We don't, we don't know how it's operating. We don't know its power. We don't know it's, how it's functioning. We don't know how it's colored by things. And so the practice just are cultivating the quality of observation you know, so intensively as you've been doing over these months just enables us to really see how all of this is working. The fundamental radiance of the mind the fundamental purity of consciousness is described in many different traditions. One of the suttas of of this tradition, the Theravada, the Buddha said, the mind or bhikkhus is radiant, is shining and glowing forth, but it is stained by the kalesas which have visited it. The mind, O bhikkhus, is radiant, shining and glowing forth, and from the uprooting of the kalesas which visit it, it is freed. Somehow to come to that clarity of understanding, 
so that we see and know for ourselves this basic purity, this basic radiance of consciousness. In the Tibetan tradition, there's one text called the Song of Mahamudra, which is about the looking directly at the nature of the mind. This is just a short, few short lines from it. It says, the essence of mind is like space. Therefore, there is nothing which it does not encompass. The clouds that wander through the sky have no roots and no home. Nor do the distinctive thoughts floating through the mind. Once the mind is truly seen, discrimination stops. The nature of the mind is luminous. So we look. We just look and look and look and look inward to see, to understand what is the nature of this mind? What is the nature of this knowing process? What is the nature of consciousness? There are two aspects of understanding this mind. The first is that the knowing, the consciousness, is pure in itself. It can be conditioned by different factors. The space of mind can be conditioned by greed, can be conditioned by love, can be conditioned by mindfulness. But the basic ground of consciousness is clear. Ajahn Chah, who most of you probably know of, was a Thai forest meditation master. He wrote something very nice just about this, reminding us of the intrinsic nature of the mind. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then it thinks that it is we who are upset or at ease, or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. Really peaceful. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we are unconcerned. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through.
coming back to rest in the essential purity, the essential peace of the mind. It's the first aspect of understanding it. The second aspect of understanding, which comes through our repeated observation, is that consciousness is not static. It's not that there is one consciousness which is receiving all of these impressions, but rather consciousness arises in each moment because of conditions. Rises, passes away. Rise again in the next moment because of conditions, passes away. So that consciousness itself is a continually changing process. We can observe this. Now, when we first are with our practice, we're really focusing on the different objects arising and passing. And by now, you've all had experiences to some extent of just seeing the different objects, the different, the six senses, mind included, the objects coming and going. At certain times in practice, it becomes very clear that along with each object arising and passing, the knowing of it is also arising and passing. So then it becomes a very direct vision of this process of consciousness coming and going. As we see this, as it becomes clearer to us, this whole process becomes suffused with a tremendous amount of energy. And the Buddha said that this process is coming and going 17 trillion times a moment. That's a lot of movement. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of activity going on. We probably will not see that many, <laughs> that many separate moments. But we can see a lot, you know, a lot more than we usually do, just through a refinement of our perception. So a question arises, which is how can we abide, how can we learn to abide in this natural radiance of the mind? How can we learn to live from this place of inherent purity? The Buddha used a lot of images, which of course were more, some way more appropriate to his time and place, but which meaning is very clear. He talked a lot about the taming of the mind, like the taming of a wild monkey or a wild elephant. I've never seen a wild elephant, but I can imagine that if they're really wild, it's a major job <laughs> to tame it. You know, there's a lot of power and a lot of bulk. Taming the mind is more difficult than that. Now, in the last 
just in these last months. You've all seen over and over and over again the first big insight of insight meditation, which is just how fickle the mind is, how unsteady, how it just is often running in so many different directions. The Buddha talked of this. It was true in his time. It's true in our time. It's true of the mind, of the untrained mind. So he said in the Dhammapada, a wise person should pay attention to the mind, which is very difficult to perceive. It is extremely subtle and wanders wherever it pleases. One who keeps a rein on the wandering mind, which strays far and wide, alone, bodiless, will be freed from the tyranny of Mara. Mara, this embodiment of illusion and delusion. You know, the, the mind is just wandering here and there, and it takes a wise attention, it takes a reigning, it takes a taming of this great power. And so our practice is just this. Our practice is this gradual taming or reigning in of the power of consciousness, the power of the mind. We can see it. We can see it, you know, in the course of a day, in the course of several days. Sometimes the mind really settles in to a place of quiet, to a place of peace, where we're really attentive to what's going on. And of course, the mind then immediately thinks, ah, I've got it. And then in the next sitting, or the next two sittings, whatever, again, the mind's just running totally wild. Mm-hmm. You know, we think, you know, we haven't practiced at all. <laughs> it's just such an amazing process. This looking at it and observing and understanding and reining it in and taming it. Bringing it back. What happens over years of practice, and we can see we can see the ups and the downs and the changes, you know, within a day, within a retreat. But when we look back over years of practice, can really begin to see a gradual transformation of the place where the mind is resting, where it's abiding. As we work at taming it, we work at training it, the mind more often and more frequently begins to abide in a place of peace, in a place of rest. This also is from the Song of Mahamudra says, at first a yogi feels the mind is tumbling like a waterfall. In mid-course, like the Ganges, it flows on slow and gentle. And in the end, it is like a great vast ocean. Most of us are in the beginning or middle. You know, either tumbling like a waterfall, beginning 
at least at times, to flow on smooth and gentle, slow and gentle like the Ganges. Then something happens as it begins to smooth out a little bit. What happens is that we become more aware, we become more sensitive to the arising of the kalesis, to the arising of the defilements. And it often seems as if there are more of them. You know, people, especially you know, in a long intensive retreat where there's just this wonderful chance to see everything that's there. It's really coming face to face with our own minds. It often seems like there's this proliferation of kalesas, much more than when, you know, before we were on retreat. You know, it was just seeing the anger and the greed and the desire and the immensity of it all. It often seems like there's not much else but that. But really we're seeing it because the mind is becoming clearer. An image which I think I mentioned earlier in the retreat, it's like if you have a dirty cloth, you don't particularly see the stains that are on the cloth because it's just camouflaged by all the other dirt. As the cloth gets cleaner, the stains stand out. It's exactly the same way. As our minds get clearer and more peaceful and more quiet, then we see the kilesis with increasing clarity. Something that is essential to understand about the kalesas and about the natural purity of the mind is that the kalesas or defilements of greed, of hatred, of anger, of fear, of jealousy, of all, all the torments of the mind, that all of these kalesas are visitors. They are not intrinsic to consciousness. Consciousness is that power in the universe. It's that power of knowing. That's all. Simply knowing. The knowing is pure. Simply knowing the object. The knowing is radiant. But what happens is that consciousness is visited by these different kilesas. It's as if somebody comes to our house as a visitor and we just invite them in. Oh, please come in. Make yourself at home. And before we know it, they are at home and they think they live there. That's what we do with these visiting gilesas. We forget that they're visitors. I have a friend who lives in Los Angeles. And he told me this story of... Uh, one day he was at home. His, uh, somebody came up to his front door. And there's somebody who really had kind of a mad glint in his eye and it really looked 
not quite right. And this guy, you know, came to the door and my friend opened and said, what do you want? And with this kind of touch of madness, this guy said, well, I live here. And my friend said that for a moment, just kind of a split second, he went, does he really live here? (laughs) 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 We do more than that with the Calaisas. I mean, we don't even ask, do you live here? You know, we say, oh, come in, (laughs) enjoy yourself. If we understand clearly that the nature of the mind is pure, that the kalesas which arise are visitors, they're arising because of certain conditions only. They are not intrinsic. When we understand this, it helps us do two things. It helps us to recognize them clearly and not to invite them in. And it helps us not to judge ourselves for their arising. If we have visitors coming to the door, we don't judge ourselves for the fact that some visitors came. The fact that they come is not the problem. The problem is what we do with them. And so it becomes very important to see exactly which of the visitors are actually kalesas, Which are defilements? Which are the things which, if we invite in, are going to cause suffering for us? And which are not? Which are the visitors that actually enhance our happiness? One of the things I love and appreciate so much about the Buddha's teaching is that he figured it all out. I mean, it would be really hard to do this all oneself. (laughs) So, in case you want to be able to recognize the kalesas, the Buddha told us exactly what we should look for. So, this is... is You can just have a little pad with you, you know, and when the visitors come... This is the checklist. (laughs) And what are the defilements of the mind? This is the Buddha asking rhetorically. Covetousness and unrighteous greed are a defilement of the mind. Ill will is a defilement of the mind. Anger is a defilement of the mind. Hostility denigration of others are defilements of mind. Domineering, envy, jealousy, hypocrisy are defilements of mind. Fraud, obstinacy, presumption, conceit, are defilements of mind. Arrogance, vanity, negligence, 
of defilements of mind. Now, it makes it very explicit, but actually we know this already. We know what qualities are suffering, either are suffering for ourselves or suffering for other people. But so often we neglect to pay attention. We neglect to really see how these visitors are affecting the quality of our consciousness. Just one, one little story. Years ago, when I was practicing in India, just living in this place, there was a little, a little hut. Um, and I came back one day, and I saw that my camera had been stolen. And just in that moment, it was so clear to me that the mind had a choice. It could get upset and get angry, or it couldn't. didn't have to. And I could hear all the voices of convention in my mind saying, well, you should get angry and you should be upset. You know, this is a camera and it was valuable and it was stolen. Get upset. <laughs> but then there was this other voice, this Dharma voice in the mind. What for? The getting angry, getting upset was not going to bring the camera back and it was just going to create a mind of suffering. And so if we pay attention, if we're really looking carefully at how our minds are working, at the inherent purity of consciousness and how all these different visitors affect it, then we can make some wise choices. We can actually do that which bring about a place of peace in us. There are two qualities which we try to cultivate and balance in this great investigation of ourselves. The investigation of the nature of consciousness, the nature of the mind. And the art of meditation is learning the balance of these two modes, these two ways. The first of them is effort. We need to arouse that quality of effort to do anything. You know, if we want worldly happiness, there needs to be an effort to create the conditions for it. The Buddha talked very explicitly about those conditions which bring about worldly happiness. That is the cultivation of generosity and basic morality, non-harming. These take effort. They don't just happen. It takes an actual doing of it and cultivating and training. It takes an effort for the cultivation of calm, the happiness of calm, 
When people would like for the mind to be calm and peaceful, for it just to come, but it doesn't just come. It comes when the conditions are there. And so we can make effort to create the conditions, bringing the mind back again and again. Every time it goes off, we begin again. And so we undertake and we practice that training. Over time, the mind actually does become calm. It does become peaceful. The happiness of insight, of really understanding. This takes effort. It takes a huge effort. Because the level that we're working on now, and that you have been working on for these past months, relative to the ordinary level in the world, what we're doing is so subtle. I mean, just to be with the arising moment of experience, to see how a thought arises, to see what happens to a sensation, to understand the knowing of an object. These are incredibly subtle things. It takes effort. It really, really is comes from the application of energy. But effort alone can get out of balance. You know, it can become tinged with expectation, with ambition, with striving, with getting tense, and therefore leading to discouragement and disappointment. And so the effort needs to be balanced. And it needs to be balanced with a quality of surrender. The surrender to what is present, to what is actually happening. Surrender does not mean giving into. It's not the surrender of holding up the white flag. You know, it's not the surrender of defeat. It's a tricky word in English. Surrender in this sense means receptivity. It means acceptance. Not identification with, not struggling with, but surrendering into whatever is arising in the moment. It's that perfect receptivity of mind. And so when we cultivate this balance of effort and and surrender, we're really creating in our minds the balance of yin and yang, of receptivity and creativity. As we do this, as you have been doing it over these months, There's a certain momentum of practice which is reached when this balance and the quality of mindful awareness starts to happen by itself. Where it becomes the natural mode rather than struggling to be attentive, struggling to be mindful through the 
through the repetition of the practice, through the continual beginning again and coming back, at a certain point the power has been developed enough. So this function of mind, of mindfulness, kicks in. And then the practice, the practice really unfolds with an effortless effort. Now, there's not the same level of struggle. It's as if we become the experience rather than on the outside trying to observe the experience. We become the Dhamma unfolding. And at this, at this place of understanding, this place of practice, there's a tremendous confidence. Because there really is this surrender to the Dhamma, surrender to the process of unfolding experience. And there's a merging of two kinds of wisdom. There's a merging of the wisdom of understanding how the process is working through all the work we've done. We see, we understand, it works this way. There's a merging of that wisdom with the wisdom of the process itself. I think it's helpful to remember what we're doing in the largest context. Because sometimes as we go from sitting to sitting or to walking, you know, and in the effort to be very precise and accurate with the arising object, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that the whole journey is a journey of exploration of the mind. It's a way of understanding and of coming to that understanding of this essential radiance, this essential purity that is consciousness. This is what our practice is about. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.